Welcome to The River Downstream, our new podcast. This episode was recorded on February 26th, and we will continue to release previous week's messages until we catch up to our current sermon series. Thank you for being here. Now on to the podcast. Hello, friends and family at the River. Here are a couple announcements about what is happening with us in the upcoming weeks. Here at the River, we have been reviewing the Human Sexuality Report published by the CRC, and the conversation is continuing. If you would like to contribute and share how you think we as the River should be approaching this issue, feel free to reach out to Gail Monsma or one of our staff members so you can get involved. We have affirmed and installed our pastoral care elders, Judy Birdie, Leslie Cleary, and Jerry Mantel. We are excited for what they will bring to the river going forward. This week, our own Paul Jensen preaches on Jesus and the Outcasts. Uh, well, friends, um, as we mentioned, this, uh, this morning we're going to be uh, taking a bit of a, a break between series and uh, talk about something uh, a little bit different. Um, this, this past year, maybe a little bit longer, um, the, this thought has been on my mind uh, through uh, times of kind of conflict or uh, wrestling about what's right uh, and wrong with this issue and, and that issue as it relates to what the Bible says. And uh, a lot of folks kind of will pop out scripture in favor of their position and, and things like that. And, um, and if you were uh, around in, in the 90s, uh, you, you may have heard this question, what would Jesus do? And uh, so that prompt, that, that, that's a question I started asking myself, what would Jesus do? Even if it says this in this uh, Old Testament book or, or this in uh, this New Testament book, if we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, what would Jesus do? It actually inspired me to, to start a podcast, what would Jesus do really? Um, and the, the first um, effort from, from that was uh, this reflection on these two stories. So we're going to be unpacking two stories from two Gospels. And they are Luke chapter 19, which is uh, the story of Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. Uh, And also we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, which is the story of the woman at the well. And so I want to read each of these stories to you because they speak to this idea of Jesus and the outcasts. How does Jesus engage with the marginalized? And so I'm going to read them both through in their entirety. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. There, you have the NIV there in front of you if you would like to read along. Uh, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in. From Luke chapter 19, we read, that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood And said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So that's the story of Zacchaeus 
in the sycamore tree. Now from John 4, this is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible actually. From John 4, we read that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray for a moment, friends. God, thank you for these stories that are not just stories. Thank you for uh, these reminders of your investment in relationship with us. God, I pray now that you'll open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see what it is you have for us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, through your spirit, amen. So friends, what does inclusivity look like? Maybe a better question to start with could be, what purpose does inclusivity serve? Or even better still, what is inclusivity? I think most of us like the idea of being inclusive. We want to be hospitable and gracious and kind. 
We want to be understanding and even non-judgmental. If you could craft your very own working definition of the word inclusive, just think in your mind right now, what are some of the words that you would include? Would they be words like safe and loving and patient? Maybe words like curious? They're probably all good postures to adopt when we find ourselves in a moment when we're about to engage with someone that we might see as not like us. So is being safe and loving and patient and curious and kind and gracious and non-judgmental, are these the key to being inclusive? Or is there more than that? I want to ask a few questions to guide us through these two stories that we just read. First is, does God care whether we act inclusively or not? Does it matter? But if God does care, what example, if any, does Jesus set for us when it comes to being inclusive of others? And if there is an example that Jesus sets, do we feel compelled to follow that example? And if we don't feel compelled to follow that example, what might be holding us back from adopting Jesus' way? So does God care? What would Jesus do? Do we care? And what's holding us back? So I'm going to skip to the end, and then I'm going to work our way there. But I want to just say this early. In the kingdom of heaven, friends, the idea that any human trait could be viewed as a barrier to offering full inclusion runs counter to God's vision. I'm going to say it again and leave it up there if you're writing it down. In the kingdom of heaven, the idea that any human trait could be viewed as a barrier to offering full inclusion runs counter to God's vision. There's a scripture that you might have heard and be familiar with. We could probably unpack this one on a, on a message of its own, but by way of setting the stage, I want to reflect on Paul's words from Colossians 3.11. Now here Paul is talking about what he calls the new self. He says it's formed after the image of God in Christ. And what Paul says about this image is this. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We'll leave this up for just a second. And without diving too deep into it, I want to highlight the fact that this list contains categories of humans that are seen to stand in opposition of each other spiritually, religiously, like Jews and Greeks, as well as people who, at the time of writing, would have been complete outsiders socially and spiritually. But I want to highlight this one key phrase, and it is this, Christ is all and in all. Regardless of anything that others might regard as different about you, Paul says, Christ is not only in you, Christ is you. In God's society, Christ is revealed in everyone. And that means outcasts do not exist. That means everyone belongs. That means you belong. 
That means the person you or I might have a problem with based on whatever characteristic we're concerned about also belongs, not just as a bystander, but as a full participant in Christ's body, just like you and just like me. And I wanted to say that early because we're about to dive into a couple of stories where Jesus shows us exactly how to break through barriers that humans erect between each other. I love that we sang Reckless Love. I didn't always love that song, but, it, but when, you, when we go through these, these uh, stories, you're going to hear Jesus was a bit of a rule breaker, a bit reckless in the way that he approaches love in these stories. So I want to invite you to listen carefully as we learn together how we can break down these walls, even if they've existed for years or centuries or millennia. Now, Zacchaeus was a pariah. Socially, he was an outcast because of his chosen profession. And the Roman Empire had hired Zacchaeus to collect taxes for them from the Jewish people. There was no salary negotiation when you were hired as a tax collector. Rather, you earned money by marking up the taxes that you were meant to collect for the empire, and then you would pocket the difference. So Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, but his wealth had come from the pockets of his very own community, since, as we read, he also is a son of Abraham. Now, because Zacchaeus was viewed as a betrayer of his people, he was also a spiritual outcast. The Israelites were and are more than a people group. The words of Exodus 19 that are echoed in, in 1 Peter Proclaim the nation of Israel, God's people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So for Zacchaeus to profit by aligning himself with the government that is set on systematically oppressing his people, he would have been viewed as a spiritual enemy. Now the woman at the well had been ostracized by her community as well, but for very different reasons than Zacchaeus. She had taken multiple intimate partners and was currently involved with someone to whom she wasn't married. Samaritans were purists of rabbinic law, the law of Moses. They were highly conservative. And they saw no room for anything other than the strictest obedience to the teachings of the Torah. So our Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So given the fact that this woman that Jesus is about to strike, up, strike a conversation up with had broken about every ancient law that had to do with marital and sexual fidelity, she was well on the outside of her community's good graces. Now Samaritans and Jews already had a long-standing conflict. If, if you remember in Luke 10, Jesus tells a parable about a quote-unquote good Samaritan, which is an ironic story. He means it to be. It's, it, and so... The idea that there could have been a good Samaritan would have seemed really preposterous to Jesus' audience. So the fact of this woman's relationship, uh, history, and her spiritual and social and genealogical connection with the Samaritan people are complicated further by her gender. Women were historically, certainly in Samaria, not the ones with whom discussions of a spiritual significance were had. So this woman has scored the hat trick, if you're familiar with that term, three goals in a game by one player. She scored the hat trick of being an outcast in her community. So she's alone at the well at about the sixth hour or noon in the heat of the day. So why would that be? Why would she be at the well alone 
in the heat of the day. Because she has to come to the well at a time when nobody else wants to venture out. This is how badly her community wants nothing to do with her. So now that these stages are set, let's just sit for a moment with the experiences each of these people might be living. What might it be like to live as Zacchaeus? Or how about the Samaritan woman? What are some words that come to mind when we think about the lives that they are living? Maybe lonely, afraid, heartbroken, tormented, conflicted. Who would choose to live these lives? Can you imagine for a moment that there must be some circumstance or set of circumstances that have propelled these two into existences where they find themselves on the margins? Which of these circumstances do we think they have control over? Which are completely beyond their control? Zacchaeus, like his friends, finds himself oppressed by a tyrannical government. He is, like his neighbors, buried under the weight of economic hardship and uncertainty. These are things he can do nothing about. So how does he not only survive, but ensure a future for himself? Does he hold fast to his community and his spiritual teachings? Or does he do what he feels he needs to do in order to save the ones he loves? What would you do? The Samaritan woman is, well, she's a woman. She's living in her own impressive environment, oppressive environment, with the weight of expectations that are handed down by what she perceives to be God, and I say perceives on purpose. It's an important distinction because there are countless institutions who claim to represent the will of God, and through the centuries, untold harms have been done by innumerable people in the name of a God whose character is actually centered on love. So she must feel like she's being crushed under the weight of the expectations being placed on her, and when she chooses happiness over hardship, she's cast aside. Her domestic partners are likely unwilling to bear the shame of the stigma that's attached to them by virtue of their connection with her. And so she finds herself perpetually abandoned, not only by men who she hopes will care for her, but by a community that has turned their back on her. So unmarried, she has no future in this time and in this culture. She's utterly alone. So have you ever met a Zacchaeus? Imagine for a moment a person who's made choices as a matter of survival in the face of a system designed for oppression. Think of a, of a prisoner incarcerated for drug use or burglary when those drugs seemed like the only way to escape the pain of an abusive family and the means to get them the only thing that mattered. We might see a criminal or a person to be avoided at all costs who just needs to get their life together so that we can accept them. Maybe once they've been punished enough or segregated from society enough, then they'll be willing to kind of come around to a, a right way of thinking. How about a Samaritan woman? Have we ever met a Samaritan woman? Someone who by virtue of their very birth is facing untold adversity. Maybe this adversity arises from the world's attitude toward their gender or their race or their sexuality, their economic status, 
or a host of other factors that contribute to simply make this person who they are by no choice of their own. Perhaps they've been told for their whole life that something is wrong with them. Maybe they've been told it so often and in so many different ways by people that they trust, that they've started to believe it themselves. It could be the church itself that's made this person feel like a second-class citizen because they are who they are and not because of any specific choice they've made. The truth is, friends, we've all met a Zacchaeus. We've all met a Samaritan woman. There could be one sitting in this room right now. It could be you. You could feel like you are the Samaritan woman or you could feel like you are the Zacchaeus. And if that's true, may God grant us the mind and the heart of Christ in this moment. The mind and the heart of Christ. What would that look like? What cues can we take from Jesus as we read about these two encounters? In the Zacchaeus story, like it happens anywhere Jesus goes, a crowd has gathered to see the promised Messiah. And of all the people who are looking for a glimpse of him, Zacchaeus engages maximum effort. Despite the choices he has made to indicate the contrary, and by the grace of God's Spirit, his heart is drawn toward God. And something tells me that part of him knows this God is about to walk right past him in flesh and blood. So when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, how does he respond? Zacchaeus I'll be back through this way in a month, and if you've cleaned up your act by then, let's see about having dinner together. No. Zacchaeus, you're clearly desperate for attention, so let's get this over with. No. But I've certainly thought and felt those exact same things about some Zacchaeuses that I've met. So what does Jesus actually say? Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Hurry, Zacchaeus. Do you hear the sense of urgency in Jesus' voice? The excitement? The anticipation? I must stay at your house today. That imperative language. No pandering or hesitation. Jesus is determined to connect deeply with this man over all the others who are clamoring for his attention. To share a meal in a person's home, to stay the night, This is more than a request for hospitality. This is an invitation to be seen as family and an acknowledgement that Zacchaeus is just that. This is not a request a person refuses in this day. And everyone looking on knows exactly what this exchange means. And then Jesus has his mic drop moment. Not only does he identify Zacchaeus as one with whom he desires to have deep relationship. He identifies with Zacchaeus as a fellow child of the promise. When the crowd begins to complain at Jesus' clear lack of understanding, Jesus is having none of it. But Jesus, do you realize who this is? Yes, says Jesus, I sure do. I think you're the ones who are confused. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus doesn't make the cut with God because of anything he's done. The whole tree climbing thing doesn't impress Jesus. And he hasn't fallen out of favor with God for anything that he's done either. What is Jesus saying here when he reminds the crowd of who Zacchaeus is? This is not a sinner. 
This is not a tax collector. This is not your enemy. This is a son of Abraham, just like me and just like you. Where do you think you get off deciding that he shouldn't be a part of this family? Look, I'm showing you that he and I are a family. So if that's not proof enough for you, I'm not sure what is. Or at least that's the director's cut I hear in my head. I imagine Jesus is a little nicer than I would be in that situation. So now the woman at the well. How does the mind and heart of Christ look as he meets her in the heat of the day? First of all, it always bugs me that the woman at the well doesn't get her name recorded like Zacchaeus does. So we're going to call her Samantha today. Samantha the Samaritan. So, so Jesus sits down with Samantha and strikes up a casual conversation. Not wanting to show all of his cards at once, maybe he's thinking, okay, what do I say to make this easy before I drop some life-changing truths in front of this lady? Okay, I know. Give me a drink. Softball. To which the woman politely responds, who do you think you are? A Jew asking a Samaritan like me for a drink? At which point Jesus decides maybe manners are a little overrated in this conversation. Look, lady, do you know who I am? I mean, obviously not, because if you did, you would have asked me for the drink before I even opened my mouth. Except again, Jesus is a lot nicer than I would have been, which is why he was there and I wasn't. And then Samantha, savvy Samantha, the Samaritan, calls what she thinks is Jesus' bluff. All right, smart guy, I guess I didn't ask you for a drink because I noticed you actually don't have anything to get a drink with, but by all means, tell me about this living water of yours. To which I'm sure Jesus replies, finally. So now Jesus decides to reveal his true nature in the most creative way, this old bait and switch that I'm convinced Jesus invented. When Jesus invites the woman to call her husband to join them, He's acknowledging the fact that these kinds of conversations are completely off-limits between men and women in Samaritan culture. They're talking about matters of spirituality, and that's where men take the lead and women follow. Even though Jesus knows how this is going to end, he also knows it's the perfect setup for the point that he wants to make. So the woman admits she does not, in fact, have a husband. And then Jesus slips it into overdrive. He agrees, and he says to her, what's more, she's had multiple intimate partners in her time and is now in a relationship with someone to whom she isn't married. So who else, without ever meeting her, could know these things but God himself? The woman is convinced that Jesus has something important to say, but she decides to test him with a question that cuts to the heart of the schism between the Samaritans and the Jews. Okay, smart guy, before you go on, as you know, we've been worshiping here since before the Torah got good with all the locusts in the desert and the parting of the Red Sea. And now you woke Jews say there's another place, this temple in Jerusalem, where we should worship. If you're as well-connected with the big guy as you say you are, which is it? And Jesus does the exact same thing here that he does with Zacchaeus. He refuses to deepen the divide by focusing on what separates the two of them. Instead, he focuses on what draws them together. If I could paraphrase John 4, verse 21 to 24, it goes like this. God doesn't live in Jacob's city. Neither does God live in Jerusalem. 
God is spirit. So your spirit and my spirit can be connected to the spirit anytime, anywhere. We worship the same God and we can all meet God the same way. It's John 4, Paul Standard Version. <laughs> oh boy. This might be the last time I preach, everybody. So. <laughs> so how does Jesus respond when he meets someone on the margins? He removes any barrier, perceived or real, and he focuses only on the way that in the kingdom of God, the bonds of family are stronger than anything that could separate us. Because as Paul writes to the church in Rome, chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Exhaustive list of the things that cannot separate us from God's love. And if nothing can separate us from God's love, then what does that call us to? when it comes to loving the Zacchaeus and the Samantha in our community. I believe that the example Jesus sets here is the bar for those who bear his name. I think that when people are wondering what they can expect from the church when it comes to finding love and community and safety, Jesus paves a way for us to answer the questions so many people are asking about what Christians think of them. And them is in your mind right now. You know who's asking these questions. And I think those answers sound like this. The things that make us different will not get in the way of us being family. God does not see you as broken, or shameful, or second class, or in any way unworthy. God desires true, deep connection with you, and that means I do too. I want to do more than to get to know you. I want to do life with you. By his words and actions, these are the answers Jesus gives to the ones who have been sent to the margins. Is it possible for us to give answers like this too? I think it is, and I think it has to be. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, Jesus equates the love of neighbor with our love of God. He's quizzed by an expert in the law about what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus answers in this way. The most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And I want to pause there just for a second because we often think that Jesus is updating the Ten Commandments with Ten Commandments 2.0 here. But he's not actually. If you read Moses' recitation of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 6, he summarizes them with these exact words. Jesus is quoting the Torah when he says this. He's not reinventing the wheel. He's actually using Moses' own words when he says, 
what the greatest commandment is. But he says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. No greater commandment. Love God, love neighbor. Sounds simple. And yet, we live in a world where hatred and bigotry run rampant, often carried out in the name of a God whose example flies directly in the face of anything but boundless inclusivity. So what's broken? What is the thing that's keeping the world from seeing everyone who bears the name of Jesus, as a friend of mine puts it, as a safe place and a safe people? I'll give you a hint. It's a four-letter word and it starts with F. Anybody want to guess? What kept the crowd gathered under Zacchaeus' tree from enfolding him as one of their own? Exactly. Fear. Fear is what kept the community around Samantha from joining her at the well. Fear of being associated with someone like that. Fear of getting it wrong and ending up on God's bad side. Fear of what others might think. What else might we be afraid of when it comes to enfolding everyone into the family of God? Can you name some of those fears even in your own mind right now? Let's be honest. These fears exist for a reason. God-loving communities, God-loving families have been ripped apart over this stuff. Fear like this is not like being afraid of the boogeyman or the riders winning the Grey Cup. This stuff is for real. And the reality of these things can be hard to admit or accept. And in the face of those same fears, we have the example of Jesus to follow. We get to be the ones who say, who do you think you are shaming this person? They're with me. We get to be the ones who say, no matter what anybody thinks or says or does, I know that the God who loves me loves you just the same. And that makes us family. John the Evangelist in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 says, We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in them. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. Just pause here for a moment. As God is, so also are we in the world. And what is God, according to John the Evangelist? God is love. And in this world, we are love. That is the job description of anyone who takes up the cause of Christ. And it's a big job. It can be a scary job. Scary things can make us feel afraid, which is how John continues. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because God first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates their neighbor, they're a liar. For they do not love their neighbor. So, sorry, for they who do not love their neighbor whom they have not seen cannot love God whom they have seen. <clears throat> and this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love their neighbor. He's quoting Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Love is the antidote to fear. The same love that calls you and I to Jesus compels us to love without reservation. We love because God first loved us. Love is an act of worship, friends. It's a posture of gratitude and a way to express the love of God which has no beginning and no end and which extends to all creation without limit and without prejudice. So may we adopt the mind and heart of Christ in this world. May we love with abandon and enfold every single human we meet to God's family. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your expansive love, for your limitless love, for love that we cannot even take inventory of. And God, we confess to you that our love can be limited. We confess to you that fear holds us back. And God, our prayer today is that by your Spirit, God, you would unlock us, you would set us free, you would help us to overcome those fears that we face so that, God, we can love this world and those who are in it exactly the way that you do. We pray this in earnest in the name of Jesus Christ who first loved us. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this recording. Just a reminder that you can find our website at rivercommunity.ca. There you can find our events calendar with information about upcoming messages and gatherings, or sign up for currents. Feel free to send us a message on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Our services start 10 o'clock Sunday mornings, and you are welcome to come early for coffee, tea, and bagels. Have a great week. Bye-bye.